When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for joining me. My name is Greg Soden, and I am delighted to bring you this conversation with Wabgishig Rice. Wabgishig Rice is an author and journalist from Wasaksing First Nation. He's written four books, most notably the best-selling novel Moon of the Crusted Snow, published in 2018. The topic of this conversation is the novel Moon of the Turning Leaves, which is a sequel to Moon of the Crusted Snow. Moon of the Crusted Snow is about a social collapse and the impact it has on an isolated Anishinaabe First Nations community in remote northern Ontario. Moon of the Turning Leaves picks up 12 years later and discusses how the community survived and thrived the way their ancestors once did. However, their natural food resources are dwindling and the time has come to find a new home. If you have not read Moon of the Crusted Snow, don't worry. We discuss what you need to know about that book in order to appreciate our conversation about Moon of the Turning Leaves. I love these two books. I read this book, Moon of the Turning Leaves, on a plane ride, and I read 245 pages in one sitting. I loved Moon of the Crusted Snow, and I love Moon of the Turning Leaves, and I think you will too. You can find Wab Gishig Rice online at wab.ca. That's W-A-U-B.ca. Please enjoy our conversation about Moon of the Crusted Snow and Moon of the Turning Leaves. Wabgishi Grice, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Greg. Thanks a lot for having me. Really stoked to be here with you. I'm very excited that you're here as well, uh, Wab. I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself a little bit to the listeners out there so they know a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Ani. My name is Wabgishi Grice. Uh, many of my friends call me Wab for short. 
I'm a member of the Bear Clan of the Anishinaabek Nation. I grew up in a place called Wasaxing First Nation. That's an island community on Georgian Bay near Parry Sound, Ontario. I'm of Anishinaabe and Canadian descent. Uh, and I currently live in Sudbury, Ontario with my wife and our three sons. Uh, I am a full-time author, a former journalist, spent most of my journalism career with CBC. And now I'm full-time into the fiction world, uh, which is you know a privilege and an honor and also a daunting uh, career at the same time uh, but just having any opportunity to write and share stories is is you know a dream come true so just very pleased to be here yeah you know and i realized for the listeners out there i went right into the friend mode uh whenever i said wob i'm so glad that you're here and i just want to say to the listeners out there that you and i do know each other already yeah. we have collaborated on multiple podcast projects in the past so for anybody out there wondering why i went immediately into casual <laughs> friend mode with uh with wob it's because this is not our first time hanging out so um so wob tell me um I i'm so excited about this this new book that you have done um i was a huge fan of um moon of the crusted snow your first novel that you did and so listeners may not know about that book i think that many of the listeners of this show are likely in the u.s and mm. you're very visible in canadian literature um so i don't really know what your profile is like as far as a, a writer and author here in the states it might be totally different um mm. So maybe give like a teeny tiny little potted piece of information about what listeners need to know about uh, your first novel, Moon of the Crusted Snow, uh, you know, to kind of lead us towards our conversation that we're going to have about your brand new book, Moon of the yeah. Turning Leaves. Yeah, that, that's exactly it, Greg. You know, I, I, I think I'm fairly unknown in the U.S. Uh, I think Moon of the Crested Snow had, I think, pockets of followings, mostly in in cities that have uh, prominent Indigenous communities and in Indigenous communities, of course, throughout the U.S. Um, and as the first book in this series, it's pretty much a story about uh, Anishinaabe First Nation in far northern Ontario that experiences a mysterious blackout. Uh, but because this community is, you know, on the land and people who live there are resourceful, um, it's not an immediate panic or chaos for them because they can still keep themselves fed and warm and so on. Right. Uh, but as the weeks go on, things start to unravel a little bit. And then that tension is elevated by the arrival of some uh, unexpected visitors from a mm. city to the South. And then this community is forced to make some uh, dire decisions about its future. Uh, so that's where, you know, it sort of takes on more of that, um, I guess, post-apocalyptic uh, vibe, mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, this moment is a chance for renewal for this community. You know, it's a chance for the Anishinaabek who live there to reconnect with the land around them and to sort of bolster that sense of community that has helped them survive multiple apocalypses as colonized people. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's essentially, in, in a nutshell, what Moon of the Crescent Snow is about. How did that book change your life? Because this was a major turning point for you personally in in your life, you know? Oh, yeah, it totally changed my life uh, very unexpectedly. And I'm just so grateful 
for the readership uh, that really was enthusiastic about the story. Uh, as I mentioned, I was working as a full-time journalist at CBC. Uh, my last job was as a radio host uh, for Northern Ontario based here in Sudbury, which is a job I absolutely loved. It, it, it was so amazing to go in and talk to people in our region on a daily basis and really get down to issues that matter to them and so on, right? Uh, but at the same time, Moon of the Crescent Snow came out and, and I wasn't really expecting any sort of fanfare around it, you know? I had two books come out previously, a short story collection and, and a novel, um, which had like very, very small followings. And I just thought, okay, this is going to be my life. You know, I'm going to work as a journalist for the rest of my life. And on the side, I'm going to write fiction. And if people read those books, that's going to be awesome. Uh, no matter how many, right? You know, just mm. one person is, is is a measure of success for me, you know, to read any anything that I write. So I thought Moon of the Crescent Snow was going to follow that same sort of pattern. Um, it was a story that I wanted to write. It was something I was intrigued by that I really wanted to get out there. And and as soon as it came out in the fall of 2018, it, it got a pretty decent uh, response, you know, critically and from readers. Uh, and that sort of built over time. And eventually there was this appetite for a sequel which I hadn't considered at all. I thought Moon of the Crescent Snow was was basically a one and done for me, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, but the more uh, I heard from people um, and the more my agent who I came on with after Moon of the Crescent Snow came out uh, encouraged me to write a sequel, the more enthusiastic I got about it too, you know? So eventually that led to um, a publishing contract being offered to me. And I, I knew that the, the amount of time I needed to put into a sequel um, was just more than my day job would allow, right? And as a dad too, you know, like yeah, as soon as yeah. I came home from work, you know, my kids are the priority, absolutely. Um, so I made the decision to quit my job at CBC and uh, just was very fortunate that it all unfolded in a very good way and that I was able to get the sequel done on time and, and sort of look into other employment opportunities too, like on a freelance basis. So yeah, you know, I never imagined I'd ever be a full-time author and here I am at this moment and i'm very grateful as i mentioned amazing so i think that you started working on this book in 2019 if i'm understanding that correctly i'm wondering a little bit about the process of how you got into it and what are some like major memories you had of like outlining and drafting and pulling from the original story from moon of the crusted snow mm -hmm. and then it like and then moving the story forward tell me a little bit about what you most remember about that time period yeah, you know, I always give full credit to the readers who, again, were just so enthusiastic and really said, you know, you should really think about these characters and their future. And that became the most exciting part of it. I thought, what kind of future do I want to envision post-collapse, you know, after this world-changing blackout? And yeah, 2019 is really where it began. Actually, um, that's, you know, the summer of 2019 is when my agent said, okay, you got to start thinking of an idea that's going to work for a sequel. And then later that fall, uh, in, in November of 2019, I was actually heading down to Toronto for a Tool concert. Mm, and nice. uh, I had the afternoon free, and I messaged my agent, Denise, and I said, um, you know, you, you want to meet up and talk about a sequel? And she's like, yeah, and I'll try to get some, you know, publishing people in a meeting, too. So she arranged this this lunch meeting with uh, Rick Meyer uh, at Penguin Random House, who eventually became an editor of Moon of the Turning Leaves, and Ann Collins, who's a publisher of Penguin Random House here in Canada. And yeah, she said, Denise, my agent said, just come with your your your, your tightest pitch, 
your basic premise and we'll see what happens from there. And, and that by that point, I had imagined that this story would take place uh, 10 years after the end of Moon of the Crescent Snow. It'd be that much farther into the future. And it would be a story about a quest to the south um, in the aftermath of this collapse, right? You know, seeking answers, but also hoping to reconnect with their original homeland because it's explained in the first book that they've been displaced from the Great Lakes to far northern Ontario, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that, that was the basic pitch I had for them. And, and I think that was the most exciting thing. I was like, oh, you know, consider the future and a quest for renewal and revival um, on your own terms as an Indigenous person with the state yeah. having fallen away and no longer oppressing or influencing your day to day. Right. So yeah. uh, so that, that's really what I remember from those times. And, you know, it's it's I'm just, you know, happy that I was able to see that vision through to a published book. So, you know, you bring up the Great Lakes right now. I live in Buffalo, New York, so Lake Erie is to my immediate west and Lake Ontario is to my immediate north. I mm. am a Great Laker at this point in my <laughs> life. Nice. And so something I'm curious about before we get into the book itself, like I know that the 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 um the village and the town and the community is planning on relocating in the second book back to their Great Lakes homeland essentially that they were displaced from that you mentioned that is described mm -hmm. very well in moon of the crusted snow what is your understanding of the importance of the great lakes region as far as like indigenous culture and history goes like tell me a little bit about why the great lakes are so important Oh, the Great Lakes are so important, you know, for so many reasons, I think most fundamentally being a life-giving entity, you know, that is, you know, one of the biggest sources of fresh water in the entire world. And water is something that is revered in, in, you know, our culture as Anishinaabek and many Indigenous cultures as well. And around the Great Lakes is essentially mostly Anishinaabe territory, right? Like mm -hmm. my ancestors and basically enveloped the entire region, you know? So it's it's really part of our collective history as Anishinaabek and as other Indigenous nations too, like, you know, the Oneida, the Delaware and so on, right? Um, so that that's really what my i think uh impassioned spirit is spirited connection is to it um but also it was like a trade route you know um it, it was uh, uh a passageway um you know along the shorelines throughout the rivers and so on right and and historically the nishnabek that i'm descended from uh traversed the north shore of lake huron and georgian bay since time immemorial you know, um, up until, you know, quite recently, if you consider, you know, to the 19th century and so on. Uh, so there's a lot of history there. There's a lot of cultural significance there. You know, uh, that's where we get a lot of our food. Like even into my childhoods, we, we fished, you know, that was mostly what I ate as a kid, right? Fish that came out of Georgian Bay. Um, so it, it really is a special place, just more widely, the Great Lakes. And I think, you know, that reverence that so many of us have. And then it's a reverence we share with with settlers, with newcomers and so on, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, as, as someone who lives right, uh, basically sandwiched by, by yeah. two of them, like you, you appreciate them as well, right? So yeah. it's, just, it's just really awesome to highlight the region and just to be able to share it. 
Yeah. And the power of the Great Lakes is amazing, mm. too. Like seeing the storms that come off of yeah. Lake Erie in the wintertime, like seven feet of snow will bury a football stadium. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or it will or the waves will coat buildings and homes along the shores of Lake Erie and like Hamburg, New York. And like you see these houses just totally encased yeah. in ice. And it's just like, man, these are powerful, powerful um, forces of nature that. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm just so thrilled that I get to witness it every year, like because it just yeah. brings so much vibrancy to the region too. Scary, yeah, exactly. But also vibrant, yeah. And and there's something to be respected, right? Um, yeah. And and not necessarily feared, but acknowledged as powerful forces. You know, like at this time that we're recording this, we're about to get hit by a major storm. You know, <laughs> and here in Sudbury, where I live, we're we're not right on Georgian Bay. We're you know uh, you know a few dozen kilometers from it. But we still get all the snow from it, and and Sudbury is one of the snowiest places, snowiest places in Canada as a result of that, right? So yeah. we're impacted by the Great Lakes even this far away. I love it. Well, let's move back into Moon of the Turning Leaves. The story opens with a birth, and I know while you were writing the novel, your family welcomed a new baby, uh, and I'm wondering if there was any uh, thoughts of like being how being a new father shaped some of the experiences while while writing the book because the opening was a very impactful and gripping scene immediately in chapter one for me. Oh, thanks. I'm glad you glad you enjoyed that. I always wanted to start the story with a birth, uh, mostly because when I came out of Moon of the Crescent Snow, you know, I, I wanted to leave a more hopeful or forward thinking vibe to it. But at the same time, in the aftermath, I was like, oh, you know, there's a lot of violence and death in that story, right? Mm -hmm. So when the wheel started turning for the sequel, I thought, well, I want to start it with a birth, you know, just to show that renewal, that that starting over. And, um, you know, I was, I was inspired also by a lot of Indigenous midwifery movements happening in a lot of communities where babies are being born, like in the home and in community once again rather than being removed to go to the hospital in towns and cities elsewhere, you know? Uh, so that's, that, that really inspired me and it was really awesome to see. And I have relatives who are part of that movement. Uh, so I thought, you know, that is part of the Renaissance and the revival that's happening in a modern context. And if I'm going to look farther into the future, I want to show how that kind of uh, practice can be further bolstered and, and it can further empower a community. So that was really where that began. And, and I just wanted to start over with the birth. And then also, of course, you know, our second son was born right as I was starting the developmental process of the novel uh, in, in the spring of 2020. Uh, so I was witnessing a birth at the same time, which was just, you know, the greatest blessing and really um, a powerful moment, you know. And, and if you consider like some of the ceremonial components to just a birth, even if a ceremony isn't happening per se, it's, it's something so powerful as a human being to encounter that it stays with you for the rest of your life, no matter what. Eh? And 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 I, I think I really wanted to capture some of that reality that I was fortunate to experience with uh, our second son's birth um, and try to capture that too. And there's like moments of tension in birth too, you know, um, as a dad, you'll know or remember like uh, a birth can go smoothly, but there's always, you know, moments that uh, are maybe a little bit um, uneasy or, or scary or whatever else. Uh, so yeah, I wanted to sort of capture that at the same time. But um, yeah, it was one of my favorite parts of the novel to write for sure. I love it. Well, 
the book opens with uh, the characters who, 10 years on from the blackouts of Moon of the Crusted Snow, are hitting, finding themselves being hit with new problems in their newly established community that causes them to go on this quest that you alluded to earlier and that you mentioned earlier. What are, for the listeners out there, what are a little bit of the problems that these characters are running into to kind of like, you know, draw listeners in to maybe encourage them to check out the book so they can see how these problems unfold throughout the novel? Yeah, so um, at the end of the first book, uh, they move away from the reserve site because they want to create a new settlement because, you know, they believe that being in the lands um, is is the best way for them to start over as Indigenous people. Yeah. Uh, so they create these new structures, these new farming um, routines, these other animal harvesting uh, practices that have sustained them, right? Um, but 10 years on, they've been in the same place and they realize that the resources around them are starting to dwindle. You know, the animals aren't coming around as much. They're not getting as many yields from their gardens or out in the nearby bush when it comes to food and medicine and so on. And they recognize that their ancestors didn't just stay in one place. They were migratory. You know, they would move on and allow the land to replenish and find other food sources or medicinal sources elsewhere, right? And, you know, they followed these patterns, you know, since time immemorial. So they have this uh, recognition and they decide, well, it's time to finally move on from this place. And there have been some failed attempts to to seek out other people or other settlements uh, in the course of that 10-year span. Um, but they've also been traumatized, right, by their experience of the blackout and also their experience of Canadian history of being a colonized yeah. and oppressed people. So, you know, they've comforted themselves in this enclave, but they realize that, you know, that's not a natural way for them to be as the Anishinaabek and it's time for them to go. And then on top of that, they consider, you know, their original homeland down on the Great Lakes and how maybe they should go there and resettle. But also, you know, they've been isolated since the blackout. They don't have any real answers and they don't know for sure if the world has ended elsewhere. You know, perhaps life has, you know, moved on without them. So that's another reason for the quest is to seek answers. So they just find themselves at a crossroads and have to make, again, some tough decisions about their future. You know, something that I'm thinking about now is the ways that this community was um, forced to become westernized, right? They were forced to live on these permanent settlement in what was the reserve in the first book. And so because they were living in this permanent place, they lost that connection to that migratory culture that preceded them with previous mm -hmm. generations of their ancestors. So like them realizing that they have to move is almost like a delayed response. Like they almost wait until it's like too late because they mm -hmm. got used to being in the permanent spots. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, totally. And I think um, that uh, is drawn from the first book as well, because in the moment of, of the blackout and in that immediate crisis, you know, there are some people who mobilize and are able to help others out. But there are others who become reliant upon modern technologies, you know, like watching TV and video games and so on. And they're not as skilled as going out into the bush as some other people are. So there's some of that that has dragged into the second book. Uh, but again, there's also the trauma, I think. And, and in the story, when Evan is, you know, canvassing the community about, you know, going on this track, a lot of people are apprehensive just because of the, you know, many layered uh, traumas that they've endured as Indigenous people, right? Um, so mm -hmm. that's part of the 
I think uh, resistance to moving on uh, and, and comfort. Sure. We, you know, as humans, we can all relate with that. And and that's one of the things I wanted to tap into too, was um, just how, not, not necessarily how complacent we can become, but just how good we have it um, in a modern context. Right. Yeah. Um, not everybody by any means, but a lot of us are, are, are really comfortable in our lives. Right. So I think what I wanted to do was, you know, push people a little bit outside their comfort zone, have them consider that vulnerability of survival in the aftermath of a collapse, but most importantly, consider what a future could look like by coming together and trying to do good things for each other. I love it. You know, so uh, w- I'm wondering if you can describe if you have a vision of a map in your head, like where the far northern community is and then where they're trying to get to. Like if listeners were trying were to open up Google Maps or whatever and envision this path, like how far of a distance are we talking about? Where to where are these people going from and to? Yeah, good, good question. So um, I didn't want to be too specific in the actual narrative itself, because I wanted people to be able to sort of imagine where the origin could be and where the destination can be Very and true. everything in between, right? Um, but yeah, there was a, a hard reference that I used for all that. Um, but, you know, in between, like, a lot of the towns and cities are fictionalized, right? Um, the, the main city they're trying to get to on their halfway point, at their halfway point, called Gibson, is a fictional city. It doesn't actually exist uh, in Northern Ontario, but it is sort of... Um, inspired by the city of Timmins, which is, you know, a few hundred kilometers north of where I am in Sudbury. Um, so envision, I would say, uh, the actual city of Timmins. And about two or 300 kilometers north of that is where they are. Um, maybe about 200, not, wow. not 300. Uh, so, you know, there's no actual community right in that spot, you know, in reality. But that's where I place them in a fictional sense. And, and I fictionalize nice. these things for a lot of reasons, right? Uh, but yeah, picture that, uh, you know, you know, the 200 kilometer or so trek to the city, then maybe 304 or 400 kilometers south to, uh, to, to the North shore of, of, of Lake Huron or Georgian Bay. And when you look at a map on the North shore of Lake Huron and Georgian Bay, there are several islands, uh, but there are only two in reality that have swing bridges, um, you know, to the mainland. And I, I don't want to give too, too much away, uh, for readers who haven't checked it out yet. Um, but that's ultimately the destination they're coming to. Uh, and, and I think people who are familiar with this region can imagine the island I was thinking of. But again, I didn't want to be too, too uh, explicit, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. But yeah, it was it, it was really fun to be able to, to, I think, imagine what their route could be. Um, and there was like some actual, you know, fact checking I needed to do um, about how far you could walk in a day through the bush about, uh, you know, how you would encounter encounter certain landscapes and so on, right? So when it came time for the final copy editing part, um, I had to like actually open up Google Maps, as you said, and, you know, use my my drawing app to like show the proposed route, right, for the copy editor, just so she knew Sweet. or could follow along. So so that, that was a funny part of the process for sure. Ah, that's so fun. Because I, I, yeah. I kind of was doing that too. I was envisioning yeah. it. Um. Okay, so the beginning, the the book in the beginning and in the latter half, they do contain some detailed depictions of ceremonies that are being practiced by the community. And I'm wondering what kind of research you had to do as the writer in order to nail some of the ceremonial depictions that are included in the book. 
Oh, that's a great question. Um, all the ceremonial depictions and I think the cultural elements are just from my own lived experience. Uh, I grew up uh, going to ceremonies, um, you know, like sweat lodges. I, I fasted when I was younger. Um, I, you know, I, I've sat at the drama and I've danced powwows and things like that. So, you know, I was really fortunate to grow up in the 80s and 90s when my home community was really working hard to reconnect with our our customs and our ceremonies and so on. Um, so all of that just comes from my own knowledge of 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 our ways as an Ishnabic, right? Um, that said, though, I, I am very cautious and sensitive about how to share these things because, you know, there are a lot of, I think, really careful sentiments around them and what should be shared with wider audiences because at the core, um, a lot of these things were outlawed, right? They, they were mm -hmm. illegal to actually do in Canada under the Indian Act. And also um, these elements of identity were either beaten or shamed out of people for a really long time you know, through residential schools, uh, you know, again, through the Indian Act or through other methods of oppression, right? So considering all that, I, I always make sure that I have conversations with people around what cultural or ceremonial elements to write about. And I'll talk to my dad, who's who's an Anishinaabe elder. I'll talk to aunts and uncles. I'll talk to my peers and, and just say, you know, I'm thinking about writing about, you know, um, a sweat lodge or just mentioning a sweat lodge and and you know this is what how i want to put it in the context of the story um i don't want to actually go into the ceremony in the sweat lodge but i want to show that it's there and then that people are are participating in it for the sake of healing or or whatever else right and and you know i'll be very um exact with my intentions and and for me i've always made sure that what i put out there either in fiction or in journalism is something that's already in the public domain you know uh and and i don't feel it's my uh responsibility and i don't have the authority to get to the core teachings behind these things and share them because you know i'm not out and an elder uh, i'm nowhere close to that i hope anyway um uh, but you know again these things are we're sensitive about them so I have discussions about what's appropriate to share and what isn't. And uh, uh, so, yeah, a lot of talk, a lot of talking goes into that and a lot of planning. Um, but I'm glad you, you noted that because I, I really make sure I try to get that across whenever I'm talking about my writing. I learned a lot. It's very vivid. The depictions are, are fantastic. And then I could like close my eyes and I could see it in my mind. So in my view, as a reader who has never experienced what you're describing in the book, I can see it in my mind as you're going through it. So in my view, as a person, as a reader, it landed very well and the depictions were vivid and oh, clear and, and bright. And I just, I loved it. Um, something else I loved is the, that the book is kind of like a quasi bilingual book. There's so much language in the book. And I know that you've been doing some resources uh, online, like on Instagram and stuff like that with some like pronunciation guides for a lot of the vocabulary that you include in the mm -hmm. book. And I'm wondering what you did in order to strike a balance on language usage uh, throughout the book. Tell me what that process was like for you. Yeah, uh, that goes back to the first one, really. Uh, you know, there's been elements of Anishinaabemowin, the language of our people, and in, in everything that I've written. But I, I think I made more of an effort to make it part of dialogue in the overall narrative in Moon of the Crested Snow. 
And when I submitted a draft for consideration at ECW Press, who published it, um, the acquiring editor uh, was really encouraging when it came to uh, letting the language be on its own in the story. Because in the very first draft of that book, I would write parts of Anishinaab M1 spoken in dialogue. And then I'd have the character repeat the exact same thing in English right after, right? Um, just for the sake of translation, I was like, oh, readers are going to want that, you know, they're going to want to know what's going on. And her name's Susan Renouf. And, and when she went through her first pass of it, she said, you know, uh, why are you doing that? You know, it's kind of redundant just to have the same person saying this exact same thing. If, you know, the people they're talking to already understand it, right? So she said there are other ways that you can translate, you know, what they're saying, either through action or through other contextual information or through the response in dialogue in English by the other character. And she said also, you don't have to translate anything if you don't want to, you know, let your language be on its own and let the reader do their work, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought, yeah, I, I really enjoy doing that additional research or, or or thinking on my own when I'm reading a book too, right? If there's something I don't quite understand. Uh, and to have, you know, a white woman in her 60s from Toronto telling me that was, you know, the exact opposite response I was expecting. Mm -hmm. So that was really empowering. And, and I thought, okay, you know, I want to carry this momentum into the second book. So, you know, it was different editor, different publisher. Uh, but when I brought, you know, the ideas to Rick, I said, well, this is how we did it with Moon of the Crested Snow. So we're going to do it this way with Moon of the Turning Leaves. And he kind of just said, okay, you know, that's how it yeah. Uh, but by the time I was writing Moon of the Turning Leaves, you know, I've, you know, learning uh, my language has been an ongoing journey throughout my entire life. I'm not a fluent speaker. I learned a bit when I was a kid and I've just been picking up more and more over the course of my life. Right. So I have learned a lot more since I wrote the last book and I wanted to include it a lot more because, again, this is my vision of the future. I want our people to have a firmer grasp of their language uh, and have them speak it without, you know, the echoes of the oppressive repercussions that they've had in the past. Right. You know, the yeah. shame being totally eliminated because the state doesn't exist anymore. So in this future, I imagine the language being a lot stronger and I felt it was imperative to show the actual language, you know, throughout this English text, right? Um, so again, it was the same sort of process of having the dialogue and also having it translated in various ways, you know, through action, through other dialogue and so on, right? Um, but yeah, I, I put together a video online just to help with pronunciation because if you're reading it um, and you don't know how it's pronounced, it, it may be a little confusing, right? Uh, so yeah, that, that link is on YouTube if people want to, uh, to access it. But, you know, for me, it's all about representation. I want to show that our language is still out there. You know, it's, it's, it's in rough shape because of colonialism. Um, but it is, uh, in a sort of resurgent phase, more people are speaking it and accessing it and so on. And I, I again, it came, comes down to responsibility, you know, as someone working primarily in English, who's of indigenous descent, uh, I believe I should have as much of our people's language in there as possible, you know? Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a, an act of resistance. It's an act of revival. But most importantly, overall, it's an act of pride. You know, I just am so proud to be able to put the language in there. I noticed it a lot more in Moon of the Turning Leaves than mm -hmm. I did with Moon of the Crusted Snow. So what you're saying to me about like 
you know, in with your as your own skills in language develop, including it and representing it more and more. Like I picked up on that on that intentionality uh, as somebody who has read the first one and the second one. So that also hits me as well, too. But, you know, with a, with a book like this, with the bilingual nature of it, you can't just have anybody do the audiobook. And I listened to Moon of the Crusted Snow audiobook performed by Billy Maristy, and I was so captivated by the performance in that audiobook. And I'm wondering if, what the plans are for the audio of this one because you can't just have anybody do it. I could not perform your audiobook. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? You could never hire a person like me to do it because. I wouldn't be able to. Um, so tell me a little bit about what that's like about hiring an audio narrator and things like that for books like these. Yeah, that's really a good question. Uh, well, Billy has done the second one too. Cool. Uh, it's, yeah, it's it's out there in Canada. It will be out in the States when the American publication happens. Uh, but it, it was so cool to have him involved because he's a prominent actor up here in Canada. He's been on stage and screen for decades. And when Moon of the Crest of Snow was coming into audiobook format, uh, the publisher asked me who I wanted, and they gave me a list of people, and he was on it, and, and I said him, you know, immediately. Uh, and he's Cree, so, you know, I'm the Schnabe, uh, and, you know, the languages are different, but they're similar enough that he can pronounce all the words, and the words are similar enough in Cree, too. Um, there were moments where he needed a, a bit of help with some uh, words, because there are dialectical differences or pronunciation differences and so on. But when he was in the booth in Toronto doing that book, he would just text me and say, oh, how do I pronounce this? And I'll just <laughs> record it on my phone and then send it back to him, right? Uh, so when he when he did the second one, uh, I just I just recorded a, a list of them. He gave me a list of the ones he wasn't quite familiar with, and I just recorded them ahead of time and sent them to him. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 so essential, I think, especially from a linguistic perspective, to have someone familiar with those words. If I'm going to want them as prominent in the text as possible, they need to be conveyed as authentically in the audiobook as well. And and he was the perfect guy to do it. I love it. Well, shout out to Billy Maristy because I love the performance of Moon of the Crusted Snow. And I'm pretty likely going to listen to Moon of the Turning Leaves <laughs> in audio form again. I've And I had a really different experience with this book, too, because the first time, the first book, Moon of the Crusted Snow, I only listened to at first. And then I got a copy later on, uh, like a year and a half later, and I read the paperback version, but I only listened to it. And then this one, since I cannot access the audiobook in the U.S. here yet, but I was able to get the paperback at Pearson Airport in Toronto when I was on a trip, I only read this one. So I listened to the first one, and I read the second one with no audio accompaniment. So I'm actually excited to... Uh, to revisit uh, the book in the audio form, maybe a year cool. from now or so. So I'm 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 gonna do both because I just love the way that Billy does it. Right on. So, tell me a little bit about the uh, acknowledgments. You think some of the people in the acknowledgments who are blurbed in the inside cover? Uh, you know, I was looking at the inside cover names here and then i noticed that you thank some of those exact people in your acknowledgement section and i'm wondering what like the crossover has been like for who like blurbed it and then like what kind of relationships you have with that because it seems like you had some pretty cool relationships along the way oh yeah i've just been so fortunate to make friendships uh with other storytellers and writers uh over the years and a lot of these people 
I read and admired from a very young age. You know, they were the people who inspired me to actually write fiction on my own. And as I dreamed of becoming a published author, um, I held them up very highly. And eventually when I did, you know, get on this journey in, uh, I think, a meaningful way, I met a lot of them and they became uh, peers and mentors and eventually friends, which is something like 16, 17 year old me could have never imagined whatsoever. So yeah, I pinch myself all the time that, you know, these people who inspired me to write are, are reading my work too. Uh, and, and you know, are offering blurbs for, for the cover and so on, right? And, and I think that's, you know, the nature of the community that a lot of Indigenous artists are trying to create. Um, you know, a lot of like the veterans or the elders in, in our storytelling or art circles uh, really had to work hard to make sure we were represented, you know, the people in the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s and so on. And now we have uh, an environment where aspiring or new Indigenous artists or storytellers don't have to fight as hard for their place or to have their voice heard or to be published or or whatever other expression they're engaged in. And I always, you know, give props and shout out those trailblazing people and try to follow in their footsteps, you know, try to emulate that example of widening the circle for as many people as possible. So, so for me, I try to blurb as many people at the same time too, who are up and coming, who could, uh, you know, use the endorsement. Right. So Love it. yeah, it's just, you know, such a fortunate uh, way to be on this journey for me. The book has been out in Canada for quite a while before the book came out in the U.S. So uh, we're still looking at a February 2024 publication in the U.S., but it's been out for a while in Canada. And I'm wondering what the touring and the events have been like and how the book launch has gone uh, for your Canadian appearances uh, before the U.S. launch. Oh, it's just been so overwhelming. Uh, I, I, I am just so grateful for this part of the journey. Uh, my publisher arranged a pretty intense tour for me. Uh, the book came out on October 10th uh, here in Canada. And right away, I was on about a three and a half week tour uh, across the country, you know, going to all the major cities and some communities in between. And, and there were big turnouts at each event. Uh, and I just could not believe the, the response. It was, you know, very humbling. And I was very honored at the same time. Uh, and I made sure every time to like give a shout out to the people who showed up because they were the ones who encouraged me to write the sequel in the first place. Right. So, yeah, it, it ended up it's still on the bestseller list uh, three months later. Uh, again, just very fortunate for that. And um, I think. Uh, for me, I, I do want to ensure that I'm as accessible to people who are engaging with the story and wanted it so much, right? And and I try to be on social media as much as possible for those people who really uh, help nudge me on on this journey much further, you know. So so it's been exciting, an exciting three months, and I'm I'm really eager to see what the response in the U.S. is going to be, you know, because as mentioned earlier, you know, I'm relatively unknown. Um, this is like my first, I think, a official uh, foray into the States as a published author. Um, you know, it's a totally different scene down there than it is up here in Canada. Uh, but again, just having the opportunity to have a standalone publication in the U.S. is really cool. You know, I, I never yep. imagined this. I haven't had this opportunity before. So, you know, anybody in the U.S. who picks it up and, you know, gives it a, a read is uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to them, too. 
Well, I have seen Moon of the Crusted Snow in several bookstores here in Buffalo on the shelves. Um, physical physical copies available for people. So it's possible that if you're closer to Canada, maybe yeah. uh, the book is a little more, um, you know, present in stores. But mm -hmm. for anybody in the U.S. who is hearing this, uh, who does not know Wabagisha Grice novels, check out Moon of the Crusted Snow. Check out Moon of the Turning Leaves when it's released in February 2024. Um, I've read both of these books. I absolutely love them. I feel so grateful that I was able to find your work a couple of years ago now and uh, do some projects with you over the years. So I'm hoping that some U.S. listeners will will give these uh, give these books a glance. Um, so Wab Gisha Grice, um, I'm so grateful for your your time, your energy, your stories, and uh, you know, continuing to educate me over the years. I'm wondering if you can just tell listeners out there where they can find you if they want to follow along with some of the things that you do, and uh, you know, see where you go in the future. Uh, well, Greg, thanks a lot. It's just such a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, you're so welcoming, so warm in conversation, and you really inspire people, I think, to be themselves. So so again, I'm, I'm grateful for this opportunity and for you. Uh, I, I'm mostly active, I think, on Instagram. It's at WAB, at W-A-U-B. Uh, still active on Twitter, uh, as it continues to exist, uh, <laughs> at W-A-U-B there as well, at WAB. And you can find me on Facebook at WAB Grace just my my full name uh first and last name uh and yeah feel free to reach out anytime if you have any questions about the stories my background i always set time aside for social media for the dms for whatever else right so please don't hesitate to get in touch as this book comes out in the states and hopefully i'll see some of you out there at some events down there wabgisha grice author of moon of the crusted snow and the sequel moon of the turning leaves thank you so much for being here what a pleasure miigwech greg thanks a lot